Amen. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn, if you will, to the last chapter of the last book of God's Revelation. Revelation 22 is where we're going to be this morning. And in Revelation 22, you may be wondering, why are we here? We've been in Joshua now for the last few months. And listen, when the pastor asked me to stand in his stead, I said, listen, the Sundays you have scheduled for me to be at main campus for the first time are the destruction of Jericho and the destruction of Ai. These poor folks don't need to hear me do that as my first sermons here. So we took a little pause. And now, why Revelation? Two reasons. One, I've never preached it before, and I wanted to look at Revelation 22, so there's that. And secondly, because in my time in the uh, Word, which just so you know, I and every pastor at this church, we have quiet time with the Lord every day. We spend time in this book not to prepare a message, but to prepare our own hearts. As I have spent time in the Word in recent months, there's been one thing that has continually impressed itself upon me, and that is the urgency of eternity. So those reasons came together, and today and the next two weeks, we're going to look at the entirety of the chapter. Today we'll begin in Revelation 22, and I'd like to read verses 1 through 5, which are going to show us one last glimpse of eternity. If you found it, why don't you stand with me and let's read together God's Word. Revelation 22, let me read now verses 1 through 5. Hear now the words of John. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life. It was bright as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb and through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either sides of the river was the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations, and no longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and His servants will worship Him. They'll see His face, and His name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They'll, know, they'll need no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord will be their light, and they will reign forever. Would you join me as we pray? Father in heaven, I ask that you would use me in spite of me to grip every person in this room. Grip us with a glimpse of the glory that awaits us. Do this, we pray, for the sake of Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Every person you will ever meet will live forever. Let that sink in for a moment. Every person you've ever encountered is eternal. C.S. Lewis said, you have never met a mere mortal. The person seated beside you in the pew your wayward child, your unfaithful spouse, domineering boss, competitive co-worker, that guy that flexes in the mirror at the gym, that strange guy that walks his dog far too many times a day past your house in the neighborhood and is always looking in, the person in line next to you at the grocery store, everybody you have ever met, whether you like them or not, will live forever. And the truth is, everybody you've ever met knows this. 
You may be thinking, mercy, I, I know secular materialist atheists who believe this life is all there is. I want you to hear me. History proves that everybody knows this is not all there is. Every culture in civilization, every culture in world history has been shaped by the idea that there is life after death. Don Richardson wrote a great book called Eternity in Their Hearts, where he documents his missionary work, where he discovered every tribe had some conception of immortality. Don't just take history for it. The Bible teaches this. Ecclesiastes 3.11 says affirmatively that God has put eternity into man's hearts. In other words, you need to know that this idea that we will live forever, it, we were made to think this. We were made to feel this way. When God created us, he created us to live in a heaven on earth, as it were. In Genesis 1 and 2, the Garden of Eden was a veritable paradise. This is where we were made to live forever in the presence and wonder of our Creator. But then, just three chapters in, we who were made for eternity were cursed for eternity. A curse fell, and what was once heaven on earth became hell on earth, so to speak. And we have been groaning under the weight of this fallen world since that day, longing, it's in our DNA, longing for a day when what is wrong will at last be made right. We all long for heaven on earth, and thanks be to God, that heaven is coming. There will come a day where we who are living in a hell on earth will experience at last a heaven on earth yet again. There's coming a day where we will experience eternality in the presence of God. Which should lead all of us right now to recognize the urgency of this eternity. Because I didn't finish the sentence. The first thing I uttered was, every person you will ever meet will live forever. But we ought to finish that sentence by saying this final truth. They will live forever in an eternal glory or an eternal torment. They will live in heaven, or as the scripture says, they will live in hell. You see, every person you've ever met will one day die. Every second, three people in this world die. Every minute, 180. Every hour, 11,000. Every day, a quarter million. Gone. Into an eternal glory or eternal torment. And what I want you to see is every person you know who will one day die, those people can live. They need not die forever. There is good, precious news that there is a creator God who knows you and loved you in the world such that he gave his son Jesus that whosoever believes in him need not perish but have eternal life. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even while we were dead in our sins, he made us alive together with Christ. Brothers and sisters, it is by grace we are saved. And we are not just saved from hell. We are saved to an eternal glory. There are immeasurable riches that await us in Christ Jesus. And so, I want you 
who have heard so many sermons to hear yet again the urgency of the eternity that God gives us a glimpse of in Revelation 22, 1 through 5. I want you to see this with me today. For those of you that are weary from suffering, you fill in the blank, you know what you're going through, I pray this text will strengthen you. I believe it will. For those of you that are just asleep, as it were, in your sin, I pray this text awakens you. For those of you that are dejected, depressed, you find yourself just drifting this morning, I pray this text will encourage you, will grip you. And for so many of us, oh, I have found myself here time and time again, for so many of us in this room who find ourselves attempting to create a so-called heaven on earth, I pray this text will captivate you with the incomparable glory that awaits you. You see, the good news of Christianity, the great gospel hope we have, brothers and sisters, is that thanks to Jesus, in Christ, the best really is yet to come. There is coming incomparable glory. And what I want to do is be like a tour guide and just show you this tour of heaven. Really, Revelation 21 and 22 are kind of like a magnificent tour. And some of you in this room might want the whole three-hour tour, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to be that tour guide that makes you stay in the bus, and we're going to drive kind of quickly by. We're going to point through some windows and see some sights in chapter 21, but we're going to get out together at chapter 22, verses 1 through 5, and that's what we're going to behold, because I believe it's the main attraction. We're going to look at this glory that awaits us in heaven. I want you to see this. I want you to see today four reasons why the best really is yet to come for those who are in Jesus. I want you to have four glimpses of the glory that awaits you in eternity. And I pray some of you who are going to glimpse this for the first time, I pray some of you in this room today will want more. You'll get this glimpse and you're like, I want that. I want to see more of this. Oh God, give me this. But I trust for the great many of us gathered in this great room today, for you, you've, you've seen this. You're, this is going to be a reminder. And I pray that it serves for you, as I have prayed for my own heart, that it will serve as an acute reminder, an acute reminder that there is an urgency about our work. There is an urgency to the eternity that awaits us. And so see with me now four reasons why the best is yet to come. Number one, if you're taking notes, mark this down. An incomparable future awaits us in Jesus. Look with me, if you will, at verses one and two. We see as we enter into heaven, we see two significant objects that should draw our minds back to Genesis one. We see the river of the water of life. And in verse two, we see this tree of life. These two items should draw our minds back to the glory, the perfection, the paradise, indeed the heaven that was on earth at one time. Now the reason it should draw our minds back there is because that heaven is lost. We do not drink from the river of the water of life. We do not enjoy the tree of life. We today are living between these great glories. We find ourselves wanting heaven, but not wanting to die. We want the glory of Eden, but we sure don't want to die to go there. We want heaven on earth, and so we've tried to manufacture it. 
Our politics does this, trying to create a utopia. So many of our lives are built around how comfortable can we make us. And I want you to see that that impulse we all have to create heaven on earth, it's a natural impulse because we were made for it. We were made for heaven on earth. And I want you to see that one day God is going to do just that. He is going to do what we cannot. He is going to come and He is going to make the end like the beginning, only better. God is going to come and He is going to recreate, so to speak, the Garden of Eden. In other words, we can stand, I can stand and speak to believers and unbelievers alike in this room and say, guess what? The future you long for awaits you in Christ. There is an incomparable future that awaits you. I want you to see this future has incomparable pleasure, which we see through the picture of the river of the water of life. That river, reminding us of the river that flowed through Eden, that river was a picture of the glorious satisfaction any person in a desert town would get from drinking cool, clean water. And the uh, picture is this. There is going to come a day where every dissatisfaction you have, every angst, every frustration is going to be fulfilled in unspeakable, incomparable pleasure. You will one day be fully satisfied. You should draw our minds back to what Jesus said in John 4.14 where he says this, whoever drinks from this living water will never thirst again. There is going to come a day where we are going to drink deeply. We will experience full pleasure. This is why Jesus describes in Psalm 16, in God's presence is fullness of joy at his right hand are pleasures evermore. The pleasure you long for that you keep trying to find in this world, it will be found fully in him. Indescribable, incomparable pleasure awaits you. Moreover, I want you to see that incomparable perfection awaits you. For we see this, and how is the river described? It's described as clear as crystal, proceeding, flowing from the throne of God. The picture is one of unadulterated, absolutely clean, pure, perfect water. This is going to be a, an existence where we will have a full, clear stream of perfection flowing to us from God. We will stand before his throne and we will experience the full glory that is the presence of our Savior. Just imagine this. You are going to one day stand blameless before his presence with great joy. Jude 24 and 25 tells us. You are going to stand before him experiencing incomparable perfection. Keep going. We look at this next object, the tree of life. You're also going to experience incomparable provision. God is going to provide for us in a way we never could for ourselves. Look with, you, look with me, if you will, at verse 2. It says, there's going to be the tree of life with 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. This tree of life, of course, you've seen it before. It was in the book of Genesis. God forbade Adam and Eve to eat from the tree of life after they took from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, lest if they do, they would stay forever punished in their sins. But one day, this tree is going to come back, and it is going to be transplanted, as it were, in this new heaven and new earth, and we will enjoy the fruits thereof, meaning we will experience immortality, and we will experience pure provision. You'll never have a want. You'll never have a need. You'll never have a longing unmet. You will experience full satiation. You will be 
fully satisfied in heaven. What an incomparable place this is. Lastly, I want you to see, because there's one little sentence in verse 2 I've left off. I want you to see, lastly, there's going to be a future of incomparable peace, which we see alluded to in that phrase, the tree, the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. That word healing, therapeia, it's a strange word. There's, there's a lot of debate on what exactly it means. Some are going to go along the line and say, these leaves are going to nourish you. You'll never be hungry again, and you'll be fully healed, so you'll never have sickness, which, by the way, is assertively true. We're going to look at that in a moment. But others will argue with reference to the nations that this healing leaves for the nations is going to be something that ensures we have no strife, no war, no animosity, no bitterness, no human difficult relationships. We will experience perfect peace. Whichever it is, I think the word peace is a pretty good summary of it both. One day, we are going to stand before him and enjoy an incomparable future. A future of incomparable pleasure, perfection, provision, and thanks be to God, peace. And here is why this is so critical for us as believers to meditate on, to grip. We live in a world where there are so many people. I bet you there are dozens in this room who find themselves doing what the prophet Jeremiah so many years ago warned against. In Jeremiah 2, he, 12, he cries out, Jesus, the Lord cries out, my people have committed two great evils. They have forsaken me, the fount of living water, and instead they have hewn out for themselves broken cisterns that can hold no water. What an image of sin that is. We as sinners look before the God of the universe, this uh, stream of wonderful crystal clear living water, and we say, nah, I'll take my little cistern that isn't even holding it. The essence of sin, and we as believers, I want you to feel the urgency. You are walking beside so many people carrying broken cisterns, and you have an unspeakable good news to share them, that there is a fount of living water available to them. So feel the urgency this day, and may you see and call others to see an incomparable future that awaits us in Christ Jesus. That's number one. Let's take another look, another reason why the best is yet to come. Number two, if you're taking notes, mark this down. An incomparable freedom awaits us. Look with me, if you will, at verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed. That word accursed, it's the one time that word is used in all the Bible. It's an intensified, strengthened way to say curse. And it infers for us all the effects, the full effects of the fall will one day be no more. We will be freed from the curse of sin and death. You know, the Bible has 1,189 chapters, and only four of those chapters describe life outside of the curse. The first two and the last two. And I want you to see the glory that is going to be freedom from the curse of sin and death. Now, everybody you've ever met wants to be free. Everybody. Some of you in this room know you're enslaved. Your pain, physical ailments, doesn't that, keeps you from doing all the things you want. Some of you have secret addictions. 
that have just got you around the neck. Some of you have family dysfunction that just feels like chains that you can't ever get away from. Some of you know you need this freedom, but others of you don't know you're enslaved. Some of you today are enslaved to bitterness, materialism, envy. Every last one of us in this room is enslaved to one degree or another to indwelling sin. You know, that's the tension we have as believers, right? We know that if Christ has set you free, you are free indeed, and that in Jesus we are freed from sin, and yet we resonate with Paul in Romans 7 who recognizes that though I am free in Christ, I still war with sin. There is still this battle raging every day. I still fall into those same patterns. I still have sin clinging near and dear. Sometimes I just feel like I can't shake it off. That is the experience of every believer. But just imagine, there is going to come a day when at last you will be fully, finally freed, even from the battle of sin. We will be freed from sin itself. Heard a preacher once say, there's going to come a day where you're not going to sin anymore. You're not going to want to sin anymore. And you're not going to want to want to sin anymore. I can't imagine that. I honestly can't. Like, it's indescribable. I, it's incomparable. I don't know what that's going to be like, except to say it's going to be glorious. There is going to come a day where we will be freed at last from the chains of sin. We will experience a reality that says no longer will there be anything accursed. Freed from sin. We're also going to be freed from sorrow. I, I want to be a tour guide here and point out the window a few times now for you. Look at Revelation 21.4. It says he's going to wipe away every tear from our eyes. Death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore. For the former things have passed away. What glory. There is going to come a day where your crippling depression, your traumatic memories, your endless heartbreak, those deep wounds you have will be gone in the twinkling of an eye. There is going to come a day where every tear is wiped away. You will at last fully and finally be freed from sin and sorrow. And thanks be to God, let's add a third S in there. You're going to be freed from suffering. You who have a bum knee, crippling arthritis. You who've been battling cancer, car accidents, botched surgeries, pulmonary emboli, all the things that have plagued this church as of late. One day, they're going to be gone. Richard Baxter, a well-known Puritan, upon his deathbed, was asked by a dear friend, how you doing? How you feeling? You want to know what Richard Baxter said back to him? I'm almost well. There's going to come a day, brothers and sisters, where we are going to be almost well. We will experience the glory of Revelation chapter 21, verse 5. Let's look out one more mirror. We're going to look, window. We're going to look out the other side of the bus now. Look at verse 5. He is going to make all things new. Oh, my word, he's going to make all things new. I love it. Every year when I come here for the big Christmas program, John Steg Merton tends to lead us in Joy to the World. Love that song, one of my favorite Christmas songs. And I love this line in that Christmas song. Isaac Watts declared, No more let sin and sorrow grow, nor thorns infest the ground. He comes to make his blessings flow. And what are the next words? 
far as the curse is found. There's going to come a day where he is going to redeem everything far as the curse is found. He's going to redeem your mind, your soul, your body. He's going to redeem creation. Every part of this created world will be made anew. We are going to experience full final glory one day. Take heart, brothers and sisters, and incomparable freedom awaits us in Jesus. That's number two. Let's look at number three. I want you to look at the latter half of verse three. Number three, an incomparable fulfillment awaits us. Now, you need to understand that anybody and everybody wants to be fulfilled. All of us. Nobody likes a meaningless life. Some of you have been searching for it by trying to get a new home, a new job. You've gone so far as to think, if only I had a new spouse, maybe I'd be fulfilled. Some of you have given up. You've surrendered. You've stopped searching, and so you're numbing it. You're numbing the fact that you just feel meaningless and unfulfilled. You've become cynical. You've let yourself go. And I want you to see that heaven is going to be a place of unspeakable, incomparable fulfillment. Heaven is not going to be a boring, dull place where you sit on clouds and strum harps. This is going to be a place that I wrestled with when I was uh, six, seven, eight years of age. When I was growing up in Oklahoma City, we would drive from Oklahoma City to Kansas City to see my grandparents. It was a six-hour drive that felt to me like eternity. And I would look at the seat. My father was right in front of me driving. I'd look at the back of his seat. And as a six-year-old, I'd start philosophizing, what's eternity going to be like? Do I really want to go spend forever worshiping Jesus? That doesn't sound fun. You know, like my Game Boy got boring after 15 minutes. Do I really want to keep doing this? Do I want to worship forever? I want you to see the glory of the latter half of verse 3. There is going to come a day where we are going to experience unspeakable, incomparable fulfillment. Heaven is going to be a place. Well, let me just read it. Latter half of verse 3. His servants will worship him. I want you to see what this tells us about heaven. Heaven is going to be a place of productivity. There is going to be a place in heaven where we are going to serve him. Servants in the original language is doulos, which means slave, which infers for us that we are going to exist fully, finally for him. We are not saved just to exist forever. We will exist for him. We will serve him as the priests of old ministered to God in the temple. We will minister to him in this cosmic temple. We will spend forever serving him. In particular, it says we are going to worship him. That word worship in the original language is letruo, which also means serve. And the idea is we are going to do what we were made to do. When I taught children years ago here, I used to always use the analogy that imagine I could build a lawnmower. And if I could build a lawnmower, why would I build it? Kids would always yell out, it's to mow the grass. And I said, well, imagine if I took that lawnmower and I went and turned it on and drove it down a gravel road. What would happen? And then all the kids would yell out, oh, it'd break. It'd probably catch on fire. Rocks would go flying. And I'd say, yeah, that's right, because that lawnmower was not made to mow the gravel. What was it made to do? It was made to mow the grass. It is happiest. It is most fulfilled. It is most useful when it is doing what it was made to do. How much more will we experience utter and complete joy and fulfillment when we at last do in full what we were made to do? We who were made in the image of God, designed to worship Him, we will one day do this for eternity, and it will be fully, finally fulfilling. Just by the way, this service is a dress rehearsal for what we're going to do forever. We will spend forever glorying in His presence, serving Him, worshiping 
him. And this is good news because that means there's going to come a day when all boredom, purposelessness, aimlessness, frustration, angst, all of that unfulfillment will be no more. Number three, incomparable fulfillment awaits us. Time is short, so let's look at one fourth and final glorious truth about the glory that awaits us. Let's look at the fourth reason why the best is yet to come. Number four, we have an incomparable fellowship awaiting us. Look with me, if you will, at verses four and five. It says, they will see his face. Some of the most glorious words in all the Bible. There's going to come a day where we are going to at last see him. Now you may be thinking, Kyler, I didn't want God till he saved me, and then I wanted him. So this doesn't even seem that attractive to me until God saved me. How is this going to be useful at all to help other people feel the urgency of eternity if they don't want him? I want you to hear me closely. Everybody wants him. And here's why I say that. We were made for him. And we suppress him. Romans 1 tells us that part of our fallen nature is we suppress the truth. We know him and yet we run from him. And we try to seek that which he alone provides in something else. In other words, we're longing for that which only God can give. And we're looking for it desperately in a bunch of other little gods. We are in a continuous search for other idols that will somehow, someway do for us what only God can do. Augustine, St. Augustine captures it perfectly when he says, we were made for you and our souls are restless until they find their rest in you. And I want you to see that there is going to come a day when our restless souls will at last rest. We will bask in his glory because the essence of heaven is him. We're going to get him. We were going to first see his face. We're going to be able to do what Moses only was able to see the backside of God. What every prophet in the Bible fell over dead attempting to do, we at last will see him. The scripture says full, more, moreover that we are going to belong to him. It says his name is going to be on our foreheads. That means he is going to be owning us. We are going to be able to approach his throne of grace with confidence because we bear not the mark of the beast. We bear not the mark of Cain. We bear his mark. We will be his. We will stand before him as Jesus' bought bride. We will stand before God his. Like the parable of the prodigal son, there's coming a day where he in his glory is going to stand with open arms and hold you in his everlasting arms. Our name, his name will be on our foreheads. We'll see him. We'll belong to him. Thanks be to God, we're going to know him because it says we'll no longer need the moon and the stars and the sun. We're going to have him as our light. We're not going to need books. We're not going to need any other source of intelligence. We are going to have the light of his glory and grace shining so fully upon us that we will at last see and know him for who he really is. There will be no more darkness. No more distance between us. No more doubt about who he is. We will see him. We who now see through a glass dimly, we will see him finally face to face and experience the full light of the glory of the gospel of God who is in the image of Jesus. We'll stand before this throne of God and of the Lamb. And the final thing it says, which is just astounding, is it says finally we're going to reign with him. 
truth be told, I don't know what that means. <laughs> and none of the other commentators really do either. But here's what I do know. It means at least. There's going to come a day where we are going to experience full, final victory in Jesus. Full, final, total. And we will reign as those whose faith has been vindicated as those who know that every hard step you took in this life was worth it, as those who can say to live is Christ but to die is gain, we will one day experience incomparable fellowship with the one for whom we were made. I want you to see, brothers and sisters, that the essence of heaven is indeed Him. Which should make us ask, I want you to think with me finally about heaven now. One of the most penetrating questions I was ever asked while reading a book by John Piper was, would you want heaven? Would you want it? Would you still want it? If every loved one you ever had was there, all the joys you've enjoyed this side of heaven are there, no sickness, no sorrow, all the leisure you enjoy... All of your pain is gone. All the pleasures you've ever tasted. Would you still want heaven? Would you still be satisfied with heaven if all those things were there and Jesus were not there? Heaven without Jesus. All those things without Jesus are just a gold-plated hell. For Jesus is the essence of heaven. God is the gospel. My favorite verse in all the Bible, 1 Peter 3.18 says, Christ died for sins once for all, the righteous for the unrighteous, to bring us to heaven? To bring us out of hell? The text says to bring us to God. There is coming a day where we will experience the glory of eternity in the presence of our Savior. This, brothers and sisters, is the glimpse of glory He gives us in Revelation 22, 1 and 5. There is coming a day when you will see in full what we have just glimpsed here this morning. But for many of you in this room, having glimpsed at last this glory for the first time, perhaps you find yourself wanting more. You see it and you think, man, I, I want to see more. I, this is what I've been looking for. Oh God, this is the fulfillment I've longed for. This is the future that I've hoped for. This is the freedom I've never had. This is the fellowship that I didn't even know I needed. I want this. And if you have tasted and seen anew the glory that awaits those of us in Christ Jesus, I want you to see that these incomparable glories await you if you simply turn from your sins and throw yourself upon the mercy of God and be saved. For it is not just the throne of God. It is the throne of God and of the Lamb, slain for the sins of the world. This is a throne of grace, which you can one day approach with confidence if you simply trust in Jesus. Throw yourself upon His mercy and be saved. But for most of us in this room who have already tasted and seen that He's good, we have glimpsed this glory before. I pray that this message is an acute, reminder to you 
of the urgency of eternity. Hickory Grove, our need is urgent. Every person you will ever meet will live forever. And our message is urgent because in Christ, we can say with full integrity, the best really is yet to come. Would you join me as we pray? With your heads bowed, as we go to the Lord in a time of response, all of us in this room must respond somehow, some way. For some of you who have tasted and seen for the first time the glory that is to come, you may need to come down here and pray with a pastor. There's going to be men down here. They're not going to be staring at you, but they're on the first pews, and they're waiting for you. You come on down and come pray with one of them, or just ask some questions. But for most of us in this room, I think we ought to respond as I've had to respond privately in prayer preparing this message. Respond in repentance and pleading that God would do a work in my heart. You come today and pray with somebody down here at the front and ask God to grip you with a burden for the urgency of the eternity that awaits us. Oh God, do this, I pray, for Jesus' sake and the good of this church. Do this for Jesus, I pray. Amen. Would you stand? And as we stand and sing, John will lead us.